generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones Lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry with good things Sends the rich away empty Sometimes it seemed like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed. But if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off. Fannie Lou Hamer, a civil rights icon, voting rights pioneer, and the great, great aunt of our co-host, Katherine Young. Welcome to our fourth episode in our series, Born Black. As we navigate the plight of being black in America, I'm Debo Dykes. And again, co-hosting with me throughout this special series is Ms. Catherine Young, Senior Vice President of the Memphis Mid-South Mississippi Affiliate of Susan G. Coleman. Hi, Catherine. Hi, good morning. Good morning. And today we're going to welcome Normella Walker. Director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Brigham Health in Boston, Massachusetts, and Cleveland, Ohio. Nomella has actively managed, facilitated, and advised diverse groups for over 20 years and specialized in business operation, organizational performance, leadership development, team building, conflict transformation, change management, and culture intelligence. She has specific and comprehensive training in diversity competency and coursework, not just generalized skills applied to diversity issues, and has counseled individuals and groups at all organizational levels. She has a BA in organizational performance and leadership and an MA in psychology with a specialization in diversity management and has completed diversity coursework at the Cornell University School of International Labor Relations. That's impressive. Welcome, Normella, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, the Debo and and, uh, Catherine. Well, we're thrilled. We're just really delighted to have you today. And I just thought we'd start off with um, asking you to please um, tell us uh, about the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Brigham Health and your role as director. So the Office of Diversity at Brigham Health, so Brigham Health is part of a larger healthcare system, uh, which we just renamed and rebranded, previously known as Partners, it's now called Mass General Brigham. And the two main hospital entities are Massachusetts General and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And there are several other smaller hospitals uh, along the East Coast uh, that are part of that system. So it's it's a it's a pretty large hospital conglomerate, and there are eighty thousand employees across the system. Ooh. I'm actually the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for Brigham Health, which uh, encompasses about I think twenty to twenty two thousand of those employees. Oh my! That's so. A- uh, 
it, it's a big place, and the Office of Diversity actually for our hospital is relatively new. Um, I think we've been in existence, so I've been there only a year, actually, and the office opened a year before I got there, and we're, just, and we're still in the process of hiring folks. Mm. Um, actually, there's a hiring freeze taking place right now, no surprise, yeah. um, <laughs> considering everything that's gone on with COVID. But we're still growing our staff, and we're there to support the organization in transitioning. Hmm. And part of that transition is about making sure that we have diversity representative at several levels of leadership um, across our system, that we are making sure that we have, we're connected with the community, and then we also are making sure that we want to... Um, that our patients have the highest level of care too, regardless of, of their backgrounds. And so there are kind of three uh, stools or three legs to the diversity stool um, per se. And so it's the looking at patient equity, making sure that we're uh, being good uh, community stewards, and then also looking at employee equity. Nomella, looking at uh, the diversity and, and how organizations are, are structured, uh, and for a long time, or every time we have a uproar in a lot of issues uh, with racism, systemic racism, we see a flood of companies, corporations uh, taking the helm of uh, including diversity uh, and inclusion in their corporations. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you see a spike in in net during this time right now? And what would you say to those companies or, or in your opinion, you know, what have we missed prior to now in making sure that we have diverse leadership at the helm uh, of most of the corporations that, you know, keep our keep our states and country running? So I do think there's something different happening now. And you're right. You know, there is a pattern of, you know, things happen outside, you know, civically. And, we, you know, we just have to recognize that organizations aren't immune from social strife. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So the history, the politics and the experiences of people outside of the organization actually impact internal organizational dynamics. And. Organizations really do have a social responsibility to the community. And I think today, especially with some of these younger gen, uh, generations, there's the expectation that organizations are going to be commenting on things, paying attention to things. You know, they don't necessarily see the line of demarcation that used to be there maybe 20, 30 years ago hmm. um, with organizations and just focusing internally on what they do. So they expect a level of civic responsibility. And um, it's really important that they pay attention to that because uh, if they don't, you know, with social media today and how small the world is and how easily people can communicate with one another, you could actually do serious damage to an organization's brand if, you know, groups decide that they don't want to, you know, utilize your services anymore. Wow. So, so it, it's become really serious. And, um, but leadership definitely plays a role in that. Uh, leaders are the drivers of organizational change. And so um, if we're going to see change, we really do have to have leaders in place who value diversity, who are willing to not just 
talk about diversity and do superficial interventions, but really create change. And I think that's what kind of people are sort of waiting to see. Now, I will tell you that um, this feels a little bit different. And I think it feels different for me personally, just based on my professional career and what I've seen in the past, because I think people were sick at home with COVID. And I think the silence of COVID being at home, being still, like, you know, in some cultures, people focus on doing. And this is definitely a doing culture in Mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. Other cultures, people maybe tend to focus more on being and not necessarily the busyness of doing, but actually the quality of being together. And I think COVID kind of forced us to be in ways to be still in ways that we have not been forced to be still in a long time. And I think that allowed people to see things differently and to actually feel the pain of racism in a more personal way, you know, because they couldn't just run out and, you know, people weren't busy going here and there. They actually had to sit and watch and pay attention. And I can tell you that there's some people who I've come in contact with who I never thought would really embrace some of these concepts who are really asking questions and becoming more open-minded and more curious about it as a result. So I just feel like people felt this differently. Now, the question, like you were saying, is, you know, how long will this momentum last? Wow. And so I think that we kind of have to look at... um, but, you know, organizations do have a responsibility to uh, to make sure that we're being inclusive with the work that we do. And part of that is making sure that we have leaders in place who represent our communities and our constituents, frankly. Right. That That is so that it vitally important that. Um, you know, we have leaders that represent the community, people um, that look like and, and represent those that we are trying to service. And it, it has for many, many years been a, uh, a big issue and a problem in most of the corporate arena. Um, we talked about a while um, on another podcast how we work diligently as people of color to get our education and, and mm-hmm. get the necessary uh, training that we need to be successful. And oftentimes we're still overlooked for those leadership roles. And it's not because we don't have the necessary um, tools in order to be great leaders. It is because we've been stifled and, and, and not given the opportunity to lead in those different roles. So that your, your comment was you know right on key. Um, I read an article um, this week, and I think it was in Forbes magazine um, by Stephanie Johnson from the University of Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. And in that quote, she said, if you're stuck for the last 100 years and you still suck and you're issuing a statement and planning to do nothing about it, people can see through it. And I yes, think the, di- <laughs> the difference now is employees are taking like you said, to social media to hold companies accountable. And many of the uh, even uh, corporate CEOs who have just resigned this week did so because their employees spoke out publicly about their treatment. And mm-hmm. workers feel more emboldened to speak. More companies are likely to be called out in their actions uh, that don't match their stated mission. And that is one of the things that I think as as um, people of color, women, that we have to begin to speak out about the issues that we're facing. 
We do. And that takes a level of courage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's always the balance. It's the, you know, how much risk can I take? You know, how much risk am I willing to take, um, you know, in terms of speaking out? And this is why, you know, women of color, people of color need allies. You know, Mm -hmm. we're just a small percentage of the population, uh, black people in particular, you know, but we need white allies in this. And I think one of the the reasons that, um, you know, corporations have kind of been light on diversity, some of them, you know, some are more intense. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it has to do with... um, cultural incompetence frankly and you know leadership deficits management shortfalls you know lacking the skill and then not really embedding accountability structures in organizations so i've seen you know where people have had insufficient training they're not getting coaching mentoring any type of development and so this whole issue that we're dealing with this is a a long-standing and complex process and I think we have a tendency to underestimate the complexity involved really with unraveling it and helping people to understand why this is important, like the history associated with how we got to where we are. Um, you know, like how how was whiteness created? Where did racism come from? You know, this is something mm-hmm. that was socially created and could be, you know, socially deconstructed. Mm-hmm. But we have to take the time to kind of look back to see what really was the cause of all that. How do we get here? And then what do we need to do to unravel it? And all that really requires sort of slowing down and being more introspective about like the specific dynamics that are taking place. And I think organizations that are willing to look at like some of the implicit things that are taking place and some of the subtle ways in which they exercise racism are able to make an impact. You know, because honestly, people who are already in place need to know what's in it for them. Hmm. So it, so there, there are some people who are social justice oriented and have a sense of fairness. And then there are some people who are not and they just kind of want to know, so why do I need to care about that? And I think organizations need to do a better job of, of helping leaders in particular, but employees overall in understanding why this is important for our organization. Right. And I think sometimes people don't really get the why behind some of our DEI efforts. And I think that's an important piece. You're absolutely right. As a follow up question, and, and this is my last one um, for this one, you mentioned how does white privilege mm-hmm. apply to organizations? Um, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, because for many years we, and and even the power structure and how money are is distributed across lines, because we know from many you know research that you know people of color are paid much lower, and the wealth gap between the two is so enormous and disproportionate that we can see how the reapplying and the uh, of wealth is continuing <laughs> for whites as blacks continue to um, eat the crumbs or the scraps on the floor so what what are your thoughts about white privilege and and how does it re- relates to diversity and inclusion in the workplace and ensuring that all people no matter what their color are are paid 
and the wealth gap is shortened for people. So I think that the challenge with privilege is that it's so hard to see. And even that word privilege, you know, when people have worked hard and they feel like they've done all they could do and sacrificed to get where they are, that word privilege doesn't, doesn't sort of sit right with them. And so when I talk about privilege with groups, I usually talk about it not in terms of privilege, but in terms of advantage, right? And that mm. the advantages that are conferred upon white people simply because they are white and what that might look like. <laughs> so there are a lot of paradoxes like that are associated, you know, with these concepts. So, you know, the paradox of diversity is we're all similar and at the same time, we're all uniquely different, right? Mm. The paradox of inclusion is that we say we value inclusion. And you could ask most people today, you know, who you know feel like they're kind of fair-minded people, and they would tell you they value inclusion. But we strive for exclusivity, mm. right? So everything associated, you know, with American progress and success is tied to exclusion. Right. So we, you know, we want to live in exclusive neighborhoods and we want exclusive jobs and we want to drive exclusive cars and be part of exclusive groups and send our kids to exclusive schools. And I could just go on and on and on. But at the same time, we say we value inclusion. So there are a lot of uh, inconsistencies that I think have to be illuminated so we so that we can actually see them. And I think privilege is one, it, privilege is very similar to that. And that when you have privilege, you don't necessarily have the conscious awareness of that it's there. And when you also have privilege, you tend to think that other people are privileged in the same way that you are. We just assume that we're all similar in that way and that everybody has the same opportunities and advantages. And a lot of people just have difficulty seeing the difference. And I think, again, sort of slowing down some of these concepts and processes and unraveling them and providing people with examples of how things might look different. Examples of some of the inconsistencies in their own behavior can really be helpful. Like even with equity, you know, we say we value equity and equity is really just access to opportunity. Mm -hmm. But then we try to hire our friends and family, you yeah. know, yeah. when there are openings. And so selective helping sometimes contributes to inequitable outcomes so we see ourselves as kind people who are not discriminating but selective helping is a type of discrimination you know you were talking earlier about the younger generation are you seeing and i hadn't really given this much thought um but it seems that with this younger generation um and with the use of social media that makes uh, companies uh, somewhat vulnerable to um, exposure, are you seeing yeah. in these young people uh, that they are acquiring power that um, that we need to pay attention to? I think they are. I mean, you know, for any company, you know, young people are the future. And so you want to make sure that you have an organization that can attract and draw young people into your organization. You need fresh ideas. You need fresh blood. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they are powerful and they recognize that they are and they know how to use their power and they're doing so yeah especially know? in so. these marches i mean you see such uh you see such a div uh, level of diversity in these protest marches that we've seen um around the country over the past couple of months mm -hmm. and um 
that's a whole new uh, experience, I think, for this country. And for companies to actually see what's going on, that uh, these young people are not interested in the continuing oppression of others, it appears to me. And that's going to make a big change, or it should. You know, uh, Debo, I think you're right. And here's what I'll say. So I don't know if people are aware of this, but there's been an enormous demographic shift in our country. So for for Americans who are like 85 or so years old and older, the ratio of whites to people of color is 10 to 1. Wow. But for young adults who are 20 years old and younger, the ratio of whites to people of color is 1 to 1. So we're talking 50-50. And in the last five years, more babies of color have been born in the United States. So that that's a huge demographic shift. You know, and so their views and their perceptions and their perspectives on things, I think, you know, have been influenced by that demographic shift. I agree. And what and so, about biracial? Yeah. Is there is there um, are there statistics on biracial? Because see, you don't see color there so there is a demographic shift and and this country is is um in need of being very abreast of that information it's really going to alter um how we um educate um mm-hmm. public education it's going to have a huge impact on um the hiring of individuals um leadership leadership demographics are going to change yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal, right? So the goal is to, again, because inclusion is about sharing power, right? Sure. Inclusion is about bringing more voices in. And I think sometimes with some folks, they don't see this as sort of growing the pie. They see it as a limited pie. And there's all this competition taking place where people feel like they have to compete for positions where, you know, there are opportunities to include people without, you know, one group's gain is not another group's loss. You know, there are opportunities for a win-win, and I think we just have to help people to reframe how they're seeing this. Because if you think about racism and the history of racism, if we're just going way back, you know, again, this is not was not necessarily a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's really steeped in controlling and understanding labor, right? And so it was, you know, you have slaves and you have indentured servants, and there are more of them than there are of people who own the slaves and the indentured servants and so they had to create some divisions in order to keep uh, you know people from uprising and so you know conferring a little bit of extra social capital on uh, the indentured servants Mm -hmm. was just enough to to create that type of division and then the, the two groups you know or people like who were paid wage workers or paid laborers feeling like they had to compete for work with slave labor. So a lot of this has to do with labor in its origins and dividing and conquering with labor. Okay, Normella, in talking about labor, um, and we're looking now as these protests uh, that we've been watching over the last couple of months, it's starting to die down just a little bit. I'm a little disappointed that we're seeing some of that uh, disappearing, but yet I think there's a new energy that is present in our society. But how do we keep this dialogue going 
um, at the internal leadership levels and management levels um, and within all employees? How do we keep that, um, that energy and that concern um, for the push for diversity? How do we keep that alive? So, and I think that's the million-dollar question, right? So I can tell you some of the things we're doing. Um, so even in the midst of COVID, we put together an equity team to make sure that um, that even though we were redirected all of our energies and focused on um, that particular pandemic and situation, mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that we were still not forgetting about diversity, equity, and inclusion and making sure that you know patients were taken care of that employees, you know, were not getting abused in that process. And there are all kinds of ways that we tried to do that. Right now we have people, and one of the reasons I was telling you earlier, we were talking about how exhausted I was and really busy because people really want to understand. I think sometimes with this, once your eyes are open, it's hard to close them. Like once you see something, you can't not see it. Yes. Right. I'm not saying that, you know, we can't, you know, lose ground. But once people see something, it's hard to unsee it. And people want opportunities to learn more. So we're doing uh, a lot more with education. And matter of fact, before this even happened, we have a leadership development series that we were putting together with a whole set of leadership competencies that we think are important. And there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion piece tied to each one. Hmm. So we're talking about you know group dynamics and teamwork and then how diversity um, is impacted there. We're talking about communication and and how, you know, to, to communicate cross-culturally more effectively. We're talking about change management and what that might mean and how diversity is tied to that because diversity actually is a change initiative. It yes. means we have to look at the system, people, processes, the environment in a whole new way. And so we had a whole list of competencies that we are embedding diversity, equity, inclusion into so that it doesn't go away, right? So that right. we continue to have these conversations. We also had had set up at our hospital uh, affinity groups for people who just want to come and talk, who just need a space to kind of be together to talk about how they're feeling and what's happening um, in their own lives and in their work lives. And so we had one for people of color, one for mixed groups where mm-hmm. whites and people of color wanted to kind of come and be together, and one for all white people so that they could be an affinity and do some of this work that they need to do on their own as well. And those were really highly attended, so much so, we did that for the last month, that we are looking at setting up weekly sessions going forward to allow spaces like that for people. So again, so they can keep the dialogue going and we're doing all kinds of support groups with our leaders who don't really know how to have these conversations, but want to learn. So there's really been a real outpouring of requests to kind of get more engaged and to gain more knowledge about these dynamics. And they're also asking, how can we hire more people? You know, where can we find diverse candidates? You know, where do we need to go? I mean, people are really engaged in a way that I haven't seen them engaged in some time. And you're doing this at Brigham. Um, which earlier you had mentioned to me before we started the podcast that um, Brigham is a community of itself. It's like 80,000 employees within Brigham Health System. Is that about right? Yeah, so Mass General Brigham has 80,000 employees. The hospital that I'm attached to has about 22,000. Wow. 
That's 100,000 individuals. I'm wondering, are other health systems um, able to contact you? Uh, Do you share this information? Because I've not heard quite this level of involvement, enthusiasm, quite this level of advanced programs um, (laughs) to, to reach um, to, to actually address these immediate issues um, and capitalize on what's going on after um, we witnessed the murder of George Floyd. This, yeah. seems to, this seems to have ignited something new, uh, and I'm hearing that in what you're saying. Is this true? And can, people, can, can other people benefit from what you're doing? And other systems? Think, yeah, I think other hospital systems and, frankly, other organizations you know, I think one of the things that people who are in this space, like, so there are a lot of people who want to be in this diversity space, but again, like I was saying earlier, really don't understand the complexity of what it involves in helping people to unravel all of this so that they can embrace it. And um, I, I'm definitely open to sharing information because moving this work forward is yeah. my life's work. Like this is work I would do for free. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I think it's really important work and There are all kinds of ways that people can engage, but you have to really kind of slow down and kind of think about how to operationalize this for your organization. So these concepts can't be like things that we do on the side. We have to find a way to kind of operationalize what we do. So I can tell you in our hospital, we're looking at equity. So we have quality and safety quality and safety for patients, right? There's a group Mm -hmm. in every hospital where they look at making sure that patient safety is there. Well, we have an equity team that is looking at that and making sure that our diverse patients are receiving equitable treatment. You know, I told you about the leadership development series. So every leader in our hospital, and there are uh, almost a thousand of them, will have to go through this so that they have a really comprehensive understanding of how diversity is tied to all of those other skills. It's not just a standalone, but it's embedded with understanding how change works, conflict management, teamwork, all of that um, diversity is tied to. Because if you're going to really learn how to leverage it, if you are going to invite it, you it requires skill, <laughs> you know? Right. So, uh, diverse, um, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, because diverse environments actually introduce more conflict. Anytime you have people in a space with a lot of different perspectives... And different ideas, you're going to have conflict. But again, we tend to see conflict as negative. It's really a neutral term, and we've got to learn how to learn from conflict. It, conflict presents a wonderful opportunity for us to learn if we know how to use it productively. And a lot of us have not been taught how to do that. Right. So there's just so many skills that I think are necessary in order to do this work well. Catherine and I have talked before. Um, about the care of black patients. Um, And Catherine shared with me some stories. Actually, her father has shared some stories. Um, And it seems like, uh, I know Catherine's had her own experience with family, but does this also benefit in terms of the care that your uh, black patients receive at, at Brigham? And can that can that possibly have an impact all over in, in the medical systems all over the country? I think so. And I can think, I can tell you that Brigham has a pretty exclusive clientele and we had an increase and definitely an influx in black and brown patients uh, because of COVID. And um, I am just really impressed with the level of care that most of our patients were able to receive. 
And because it's a teaching hospital, right, it's a research hospital, we're trying to make sure that we get black and brown patients involved with the clinical trials. So we have teams of people. I'm on these equity teams where we're looking at, okay, so if we're going to have some kind of clinical trial for a, you know, for a vaccine, we need to make sure that we have black and brown patients who are participating too. You know, so it's kind of paying attention at every level you know, to make sure that, that whatever procedures, processes, practices are taking place, that you've got equity involved. And I can tell you very recently, I'm really proud of this as an institution. So I'm going to get a little clinical here, but that's <laughs> as okay. As I can get anyway. That's all right. Um, there's a marker called the, the EGFR. And it, if, for anyone who has kidney disease, they would know about this. So if you are African American or Black, you are given additional points on a scale because you are black according to your EGFR. And that number determines who's eligible for kidney transplants and who isn't. And it basically, if you're black, you just get a higher number. And that number would then prevent a lot of black patients from being eligible for kidney transplants. And, you know, there was some research done and, you know, we realized that you can't really and it's based on muscle mass. So the, you know, the premise is that black people have greater muscle mass. Well, there's no scientific proof of that anywhere. <laughs> and we've been kind of doing this for a hundred years. Oh, wow. And so it was an old practice. It was sort of an embedded racist way to view this process. And uh, we've been teaching it in medical schools and still doing it across the country. And they just eliminated that at our hospital. So they're no longer be using that um, EGFR as a predictor or, you know, to, to assign to black patients anymore. But there's so, there are a lot of different racialized um, concepts that are sort of embedded in medicine that we need to deconstruct and get out. And we have actually people at our hospital who are working on that. So again, that's a way to operationalize this. Well, and that's some of the, you know, the complex systemic racism that, that we've been talking about. And you got even it. in our medical community and even with my own uh, great great aunt, um, who you probably read the story about who had her uh, appendix taken out of. She was going in for appendectomy and actually had her um, reproductive organs removed. And it was. It had nothing to do with the appendix, uh -huh. but that of a racial bias and trying to make sure that um, black women could not reproduce and have, uh, you know, female children or male children or children, period. So and, and the reason why I, I feel that a lot of um, people of color uh, shy away from clinical trials is for some of those various reasons historically that we've seen where um, we've been used as a as a point to get uh, studies um, done, but we've not benefited for those. And it, even in my role now, uh, promoting clinical trials for breast cancer for uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people and, and listening to them and, and having listening sessions and tours, uh, we find that this is still a part of their um, mindset is Absolutely. that they do not want to participate because we are continuing to be used and, and, and not given the adequate tools. And we see a lot of research, even here in Mississippi, people come to research, um, you know, 
everything from cancer to diabetes and, and why we behave a certain way and, and not getting, you know, treatments that are vital to our health. But once they get the information from patients and, and from the mm-hmm. community, then they leave and there is nothing left for the community to uh, receive or, or help for them going forward. And and this goes back to leadership. Um, it leads into how uh, we're disproportionate within our health um, community mm-hmm. and how we've seen many studies where um, people of color are, are treated less in the medical arena than they are in, you know, than whites are. And how we choose our physicians and, and how we are seen in our physicians' eyes that, you know, they don't break down information to us as well as they do um, other people because of they think that our educational level is so low that they don't feel the need to explain things and give us the, all the different options. So in a multifaceted mm-hmm. of all of this systemic racism, I, I think that having conversations just like you've spoken of um, and what you're facilitating it at, even at your organization it's so critical for us to move forward and have the equity that we're looking for and not just uh, having a pair of shoes, if I can use that for an example, but a pair of shoes that fit the individual. That's where mm-hmm. true equity lies is, is is having the tools that that particular person need in order to flourish. So you said a mouthful there. And I just want to say you're right. You know, we carry that history with us. History doesn't live in the past, right? We bring it forward. And so that fear of participation in some ways, you know, is protective. But in other ways, it prevents us from getting, you know, treatment that we might need or, you know, being on the cutting edge of being able to receive, um, you know, groundbreaking medication. So it's a both end. And I will also say, like you were talking about the physicians, you know, not spending time necessarily with uh, patients of color. So one of the things that we discuss is actually, why is that? So sometimes it's not necessarily because they think the person lacks education. A lot of it has to do with the physician, him or herself. It's just like when you sit across from a person and you haven't spent uh, time with diverse groups, there's a sense of miasma or discomfort that can come from that where you have a reaction as the physician. So, you know, what studies and research have actually shown is heart rates will increase. People Mm. will use less eye contact. They'll even use fewer words. Mm. You know, the time spent will be shortened because of that whole discomfort that the cross-cultural interaction can create in people who aren't accustomed to it. And again, knowing that that might happen can help you to control that a little bit better but if it's just happening and you don't have a conscious awareness of it right then you can't control what you don't know about so you know bias in physicians can show up or racism whatever word you want to use can show up in all different kinds of ways and again i think there are embedded racist um, responses that people have often that that are happening at such a subconscious level that they're not even aware that they're responding. So what we teach people to do is kind of slow down and pay attention to what's happening in their bodies, right? Because we feel racism in our bodies. 
not just as black bodies, but white bodies too. And paying attention to those cues can give you information. So, you know, we tend, especially in an academic medical center, to be very head focused, very brain focused. But what we're trying to teach people is, you know, there is logic and information in the body as well. And you need to be paying attention to what's happening beneath the shoulders or beneath the neck also. Mm-hmm. And that's not only true, I would think, in the individual, but I would think that the medical professionals need to be also aware of these cues. And if they see that someone is not uh, maintaining eye contact or they're using fewer words, they themselves need to step back and um, reassess quickly how they're addressing that individual. That's right. So how can they be more relational? Exactly. Yes, yes. And I assume you all do that. It is. So once you have the awareness of a dynamic, if you feel it in yourself, you can control that better and slow yourself down and kind of make more of an effort. And if you see it in the other person, you can be more relational, right? You can slow things down, kind of, you know, try to have them be calmer, do things to kind of be more uh, in community. So, yeah, absolutely. I I think that's right on. I think, um, you know, when you have people and we still have people of color who have less than a high school diploma that inferiority um, of the physician and patient relationship Uh you know is sort of uh, stifled some in the fact that you know the patient feels um, you know somewhat inferior and I'll just give a personal uh, example of this Um, my niece has stage four colon cancer and uh, a physician that that she had um, at a new institution that we were at um, she was one of the people that we're talking about Um, she had her head held down but mind you this is a stage four uh, 28 year old um, Mm -hmm. just been told that she has colon cancer and it had metastasized to other organs within her body so few words she was she had but I was there with her and one of the things that I like about this position was that she recognized that Mm -hmm. something was going on with her and she pulled it out of her and the one thing that she said um, that captured my attention she stopped with the medical stuff and she said I care she said I care for you, your family, and everything that's going on with you. And I know this is difficult for you. So she appealed to her um, her emotions because she knew she was emotional at that particular time. And mm-hmm. she addressed her emotions and her feelings and allowed her to tell her what she was feeling internally before she began to tell her the medical side. And after that, she began to open up. She began to look her in the So eye. this is her doctor that... This is her doctor. Mm-hmm. That, in, that recognized that doctors. and invited your niece to um, relax and to be comfortable asking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and mm-hmm. I think this is one of the pieces a lot of times that we are missing um, even in corporations uh, you know across all spectrum is allowing people to feel. Mm-hmm. And if you allow people to feel, empathize with them and understand, you know, their position, then we can sit back and we can listen just a little bit more and better understand how as 
leaders that we can adapt and help those people and bring them to the level in which because we are all my brother my sister's keeper and mm-hmm. how and how we're trying to build them up not tear them down if we're that's in right. leadership roles we are builders yes that's right you know and what's sad about that is that there are people in those roles who don't understand that that is their role right right so part of slowing down deconstructing is helping people to understand precisely what their role is and what their role is not right so what expectations you do have and then providing them with the skills to do those roles effectively because we often promote people into leadership roles because they have good uh, skills in a function right but knowing how to do a function well is very different than knowing how to lead people in doing that function that's a whole different skill set and we put people in roles often, honestly, without giving them the tools to be successful. And I think what you said, just that one point of humanity, you know, where she said, I care. That is so valuable. And that's one of the things that we're trying to focus on at our hospital, too. Not just being brain focused, but being heart focused and body focused. So one of the things that we actually implemented is whenever we start a meeting. So this is a pretty, you know, I don't know if you know this, but these teaching hospitals are, ty- are tied to Harvard Medical Center. It literally is across the, our, our, our parking lot. Uh-huh. And so high achievers, type A personalities, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're trying to do is people are going from meeting to meeting and they're you know, managing several projects at once, doing research, teaching, seeing patients, all kinds of things happening to try to get them to kind of slow down a little bit and to take care um, and to bring humanity into the space. So what we'll do is we'll have people, when we start a meeting, go around the room, introduce themselves. And in this process, they include their name, their role in the organization. We have them tell us what their racial and ethnic uh, background is so that they can you know, bring whatever they want to regarding that into the space. We ask them to sh- pronouns, so whether it's, you know, he, she, hers, they, whatever, however they want to be referred to. And then we ask them to tell us how they're feeling. So there's what we call the window of effective tolerance. And it tells us whether it's on a scale from, so, you know, uh, zero is sort of the midpoint. Positive 10 would be really um, energized, like, you know, so energized, like maybe like how you might be feeling if you're in the midst of a protest. And then negative 10 would be probably comatose, right? And so we ask people to tell us what their number is so we know how people are feeling as they come into the space. And we can have, you know, some caring around that. So it really is a way to have people be connected to each other in a human way, not just, you know, in an academic way. I, I appreciate that. You know, Normella, talking with you is so refreshing, and you're so passionate about what you do. Um, I'm curious, and I think our listening audience would be curious. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about uh, your early childhood, some of your experiences? Uh, what made yeah. you who you are? <laughs> so, um, so I grew up, so I, my job is in Boston. Uh, right now I'm, I'm in Ohio, uh, where I grew up, uh, and I've been traveling back and forth. Um, so I grew up in a small suburb called Shaker Heights, right outside of Cleveland. So that's in Northeast Ohio. And, you know, this suburb is is a little bit different than a lot of suburbs in our country. It it was a suburb that, that really values 
diversity. Values education. Uh, most of the property taxes go toward the schools. Probably in our communities, the superintendent is more important than the mayor. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and nice. um, a community of professionals who really cared about diversity. And so it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, I had friends of all different kinds of colors, and that was always encouraged not only in my neighborhood, but also encouraged in my family. You know, my, my mother is sort of an international person who had friends of all different backgrounds, um, colors, uh, or not colors, but races, and ethnicities, people from around the world. She was just sort of a pied piper of people. So, again, it was, so diversity is a value in my neighborhood, but it was also a personal value of my mom in particular. And, um, and I think what growing up in um, environments that are diverse does for you is it supports you in understanding that literally people are just people. And so I think when you grow up in homogenous areas, the only thing you know about other groups is what you kind of hear through media or other people say, but you don't have personal experiences. And I feel like because I've had personal experience with so, experiences with so many different types of people, that you realize you just have to get to know people as individuals and that there are good people and there are bad people that come in every kind of flavor <laughs> and, and um, hail from every kind of background. And it just makes doing this work easier. I think it, it, it um, provides me with a level of comfort, you know, with being with people from different backgrounds um, that I find that a lot of folks don't have. And one of the reasons that I was sort of drawn to this work was because it was very natural for me to be in diverse environments. And I saw how unnatural it was for a lot of other people in my um, professional settings. Like I was noticing that there are people who are really struggling, you know, to be with people who are different from them in ways that was surprising to me. And uh, I was very curious about that and wanted to learn more. So I uh, went back to school. Uh, I've always been an autodidactic learner anyway, because I feel like all learning, real learning is self-taught. You know, It's when you have a passion to learn something, you learn it very differently. And uh, wanted to know more and, um, and luckily found a program that really supported my understanding this in a really intrinsic and comprehensive way. And um, I love doing this work. I also have done work with schools. I've done work with law enforcement because um, I think those areas are, are vitally important too. Uh, so well, that's well, a little well, bit about how, about how I got to where I am. <laughs> well, and what you're doing is so important. And it seems like um, Brigham Health is um, ahead of, of a lot of organizations and hopefully this podcast will reach into these communities and will have the opportunity to reach out to you or to possibly benefit from the work that is being done through your office uh, at Brigham. Uh, Catherine, do you have any closing thoughts? My uh, closing thoughts is I take this from another article that I read, um, and it simply says that it is an institutional and systemic insult on people of African heritage. Black lives does matter, plain and simple. The issues is that within a system that appears resolved on preserving dominance, acts of racism, both covert and overt, have been allowed to flourish. Racism can no longer be swept under the carpet. 
Organizations also need to realize that simply increasing their headcount of people of color without adopting meaningful actions to elevate them through their company ranks is aching to window dressing rather than truly becoming diverse. Love that. Yeah, and Romello, please, would you offer some closing comments yourself? I love what you're doing. Well, one, so I think what's really important um, to take away also is this idea of starting with self, right? So I think people often are very curious about other people, but a lot of really what supports you in doing this work is understanding more about yourself, like where your attitudes come from, you know, what underlies some of that, your own behaviors, your own motivations, you know, um, what you can do differently to support people, how you can show up in a more courageous way, how you can be an advocate for, you know, from the self point of view, right? Like, right. So I think a lot of times we think about other groups, but really understanding more about self and what drives us and the dynamics that are occurring in us, you know, what triggers us as individuals, I think is a really important place to start. Because if we can understand more about ourselves, then I think we can um, make a greater impact on other folks. Great. Amazingly stated. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you, Noella. This has um, been such an eye-opening conversation. I'm very grateful for your participation and, and giving us this time. Um, Catherine, thank you. Uh, as always, you uh, give opportunity for us to open our eyes to new challenges and how to address those. Um, so I want to thank our listening audience uh, for uh, being with us today. Catherine, thank you for helping co-host today. And Normella, thank you for taking time with us today. It has just been an eye-opening experience. And I'd like to thank the both of you as well for having me. Well, to learn more about Normella and her work as Director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Brigham Health, please visit her website, www.bringhamandwomans.org. I'll spell that. B-R-I-G-H-A-M-A-N-D-W-O-M-E-N-S dot org. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason Educational Programming. Additional funding is provided by the Winland Cook Foundation. Please visit our website at www.faithandreason.org. Remembering mercy according to the promise to those he made before. To Sarah, to Abraham, to Hagar, to their children's children. Evermore.